I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corem Podcast. In each episode of the Corem Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. The last few weeks and months have been incredibly difficult. Religious and communal life especially has been changed immeasurably. Shuls and schools have been closed. Smachot and celebrations have been postponed or cancelled or celebrated in a way that just feels strange. And every time we turn on the news, it seems as if there's something new to worry about. And the future just seems uncertain. At times such as these, we look to our leaders and teachers for guidance and inspiration. Two of the greatest leaders of modern orthodoxy in the 20th and 21st century were undoubtedly the Rav, Rav Joseph B. Soloveitchik, and Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. We sat down with our colleague, chair of the editorial board of Mugged Books, Rabbi Ruben Ziegler, to hear about how these giants approach times of crisis and to consider what we can learn from them today. Let's jump straight in. We're delighted to be joined by Rabbi Ruben Ziegler. Rabbi Ziegler is director of research at the Torah Sarah Foundation and founder and editor-in-chief of Yeshivat Haaretzion's renowned Israel Kashitsky virtual Bet Midrash. He's also, of course, editorial director here at Koren. Rabbi Ziegler is one of the world's leading authorities on the writings of Rav Soloveitchik, as you can find out in his book, Majesty and Humility, The Thought of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, now also a bestseller in Hebrew, published by Magid Books as Ozva Anava, Hagutor Shala Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik. Rabbi Ziegler, welcome to the Koran Podcast, and how are you doing? I'm good, thank God. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Great to have you with us. Um, just to get started... Um, can you tell us a bit about, give a bit of, especially for those listeners that aren't so familiar, a bit of b- background history to, to the Rav, to Rav Soloveitchik? Okay, uh, just to place him chronologically, Rav Soloveitchik lived from 1903 to 1993. Um, he was born in Eastern Europe, uh, and then he made an odyssey from a very traditional upbringing in Eastern Europe to, uh, he moved to, he went to university in Berlin uh, in the 1920s. Uh, then he moved to America in the 1930s. He moved to Boston. He became uh, the rabbi of the Orthodox Congregations of Boston. And in 1941, he began teaching at YU, and he taught there for more than four decades and became basically the leading intellectual uh, religious figure uh, of modern orthodoxy. In some ways, you can say he even founded modern orthodoxy. It wasn't a term that he liked to use, but he influenced uh, two generations of rabbis. He he had uh, thousands of students. They say that he gave smicha to the largest number of people ever. He gave smicha to 2,000 students. Uh, and he was uh, both a uh, world-class rabbinic scholar. Uh, that's what he devoted most of his time to, giving shir and gemara. Uh, and uh, he was the continuer of the Brisker tradition, to which he added his own unique uh, chidushim. Uh, and uh, he was also a very, very uh, deep philosopher. Uh, he had a PhD in philosophy. Uh, he had a sterling traditional upbringing. And he was really a master of all of Jewish learning. He was a master of Western philosophy. He was a very creative thinker himself. And he tried to to convey the excitement and viability and relevance of, of Judaism in the modern world and what Judaism has to contribute. I personally also discovered him in high school. I mean, he was still alive, but I, I, I wasn't old enough to get to learn with him. By the time I was old enough to study with him, he wasn't teaching anymore, but I discovered his writings and they completely blew me away. And so it's been a, a one-sided love affair since then. So with uh, Rav Soloveitchik being, as you say, the master of both you know, all Jewish learning and of Western learning as well, in your view, how do you think we can approach the challenging times that we find ourselves um, using the philosophy or the teachings or just the, as you say, the brisker approach of the Rav to face the challenges that we, uh, we're encountering today? 
Well, it's interesting. I think if you look at the great Jewish thinkers over the generations, uh, the one who talks about the problem of suffering the most, I think, is Rav Soloveitchik. Uh, I mean, it comes up in a lot of thinkers, but I think that he devotes more attention to it because he's not just talking about it in an abstract philosophical sense, the classic problem of tzaddik varalo, of why do the righteous suffer? Uh, he's approaching it from a very different direction, from a much more immediate, direct, personal, existential direction. I, th I think that this characterizes his thought in general. Uh, I once heard a very nice distinction from Professor Shalom Rosenberg. He said the difference between uh, medieval Jewish thought and philosophical thought in general and modern thought is that medieval thought was written from God's point of view and modern thought is written from man's point of view. And that it becomes very clear when you deal with the problem of suffering in the world. Um, if you take, you know, the pinnacle of medieval Jewish thought was clearly the Rambam's Mora Nevuchim, Guide of the Perplexed. Uh, and he has a whole section at the beginning of the third book of Mora Nevuchim about suffering, based obviously on the biblical book that deals with suffering the most, namely the book of Eov, of Job. Um, and so the Rambam in, in part three of the guide says, Basically, and I apologize to the Rambam because I'm going to oversimplify what he's saying, but you can't do a soundbite version of this. Uh, but if you would have to say it in a sentence, Rambam says that uh, evil is an illusion. It doesn't, it doesn't actually exist. Okay, and so, and he goes through all sorts of explanations of how that's possible. Um, Rav Soloveitchik says, you know, for all my love and respect and, and awe of the Rambam, uh, I disagree with him about this. I don't think this is a fruitful approach uh, because the Rav, and the Rav says this for both philosophical reasons and human reasons. Uh, first, the Rav is a modern philosopher. And he says, you know, modern philosophy, you could talk from God's point of view. Uh, medieval philosophy, you could speak from God's point of view. You know, the Rambam writes about how does God exercise providence over the world? Uh, did he create the world or is it eternal? Uh, why did he give the mitzvot? Uh, you know, how does he give prophecy? The Rav deals with all these problems, but from the human point of view. He doesn't say, uh, you know, uh, how does God exercise providence? Because how can we know that? We don't have God's infinite intellect. We only have our finite human intellect. So he says, but what does providence mean for me in my life? What, how does nevuah impinge on me in my life? Uh, you know, tamea mitzvot, not why did God give them, but how do I experience them? Everything, all these problems he's dealing with from the other point of view, from the human point of view. And the same with the problem of evil. Uh, he says, the question is not, why does God allow the righteous to suffer? Why does he allow evil to happen in the world? He says, uh, I can't know that, first of all. Second of all, it's a morally problematic question because if you explain away evil and you explain why, you know, that evil is an illusion, so that denies the legitimacy of the poor people who are suffering, you know, and also if evil doesn't exist, why should you try to ameliorate it? You know, why should you try to help? Why should you try to change things? If hakolitova, if whatever, so then, okay, so let it be. Um, so he has a, a, an intellectual problem with that answer. He has a moral problem with that uh, answer. And he said even more so, he said just practically, it's useless. The Rav uh, once said that when he was a young rabbi, he came to Boston and he had to deal with people who were suffering. He had diseases, they had losses. So he said, so I would repeat to them the Rambam's philosophical answer. He said, and you know what? It didn't help them at all. So practically, it's not a useful uh, approach for the modern person. Modern man isn't attuned to that kind of talk from God's point of view. We can only speak from the human point of view. So therefore, the Rav said, we should be asking a different question. The question of why is there suffering in the world is legitimate because we can't just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, there's no real evil in the world. Everything is okay. So, but on the other hand, he said, asking why is not the right question. The right question is, how do I respond to it? I can't understand why, but I can say, okay, but when I encounter it, what should I do? How should I react? How should it affect me? And he says this is the approach of halacha in general. He calls this the halachic approach to the problem of evil. In halacha, we don't ask why. We ask, I encounter X, what do I do? How should I react? How should it affect me? Um, so if you had to boil down the Rav's answer 
to a sentence, but we're going to unpack this in the course of our discussion, I hope. Um, he says the, the, we don't have an answer, but we have a response. We have a practical response. And our response is tshuva, repentance. But what he means by repentance is not, oh, obviously this is happening to me because I speak too much Lashon Hara. So therefore, if I stop speaking Lashon Hara, it'll stop happening. He says, we can't know why it happened. But we can say, look, the, this, the, the suffering, the crisis has shaken me out of my routine. Right? And that's basically happened on a global scale right now, the, the crisis that we're in. Everyone has been shaken out of their routine. And that gives you a chance to think about the bigger questions. You know, what path am I on? Where am I going? Usually in life, we tend to just go with the flow. We're so busy with everything that's going on. We're not thinking about the bigger picture, about who do I want to be? What are my larger goals? What are the important things? What are the less important things? So tshuva is about, it's not just about, I did X wrong, I'm going to stop doing X. That's also important. But tshuva is much more. It's about self-improvement, self-creation. And uh, the Rav has really striking and startling insights about that. And you mentioned before the how sort of the Rav um, talked about halacha and teshuva as 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 a sort of a response to um I guess his views on suffering. Is do we see that sort of um manifest itself in his psak or in the way that he describes or taught certain halachot? That that should sort of show a reflection of his approach. Are there, are there specific examples that we see where uh, this is a halachic approach for a halachic case, but is very reflective on, on his philosophy regarding suffering? Um, he, I mean, it it comes up very often uh, in his in his uh, writings that he talks about how you know the passive armchair philosophizing approach to anything is not necessarily the most productive approach in general he advocates uh living an active life not a passive life living a creative life and not a life where you're he says the whole thrust of halacha is changing the person from an object into a subject uh and that comes to the fore in everything because in in uh, you know, it's like uh, when you have a, a ship, you know, a ship can has a goal, but then there are winds that blow it in one direction, blow it in another direction. There are storms, there are waves. So so the passive approach is, you know, if the wind blows you east, so you go east. And if the wind blows you west, you go west. The active approach is, no, I'm trying to head for a certain direction. So if the wind blows me in one direction, I'm going to correct my course in the other direction, and, and so on. Uh, so he says, in general, in, in all areas of life, uh, and I think this is why, for example, he was so supportive of Zionism, why he was supportive of secular studies, why he was... Supp- he said, we're meant not to hide and to be passive, we're meant to be active in the world. Uh, and therefore, he wasn't afraid of engaging the world. Uh, he felt that it was, we have to be rooted in the Beit Midrash. We have to be rooted in tradition. We have to be rooted in the values that are given to us by halacha, by Torah. And then we have to apply them in the world. So, and even within the Beit Midrash, he didn't advocate passive study. You know, like there's passive study where, okay, I learned one daf, another daf, another daf, and maybe I've even said over some of the things that some people have said before me. He said, no, the essence of learning is chidush. The essence of learning is to take the material, to recast it in your own thought, and to come up with new conceptual categories, to come up with new ways of understanding it. Uh, so, so learning itself becomes an active, excited, creative enterprise. And also, in general, his advocacy of studying philosophy, of engaging in professions, of, of building the world, uh, that comes to the fore in everything he writes. So uh, now, um, regarding, now, regarding the general approach to, to suffering, to tshuva as a cause to suffering, it's very easy to say, okay, so when you have suffering, you should engage in tshuva. But he actually takes it a step further. And scattered throughout his writings, which we can try to collect here, he has, I think, three overarching methods 
by which one can utilize crisis and suffering as a catalyst for tshuva. Could you give us an example of, of uh, perhaps either times in the Rav's life, in his own personal life, or in, in you know, society during the, during the time that the Rav was alive, where he was applying this, where he was you know, advocating for individuals or even saying you know, himself, um, you know, this is something I'm experiencing and, and, and therefore I need to act in a certain way. Are there examples you can give us uh, that you're familiar with? Yeah. So, so there, there are two uh, very important catalysts uh, in his life for the, this confrontation. Uh, the first is historical and the second is personal. Um, the first historical one is that uh, he was very lucky to leave uh, Europe uh, before the Shoah. Uh, as I said, he was in University of Berlin uh, in the 1920s, uh, and also uh, he, he left University of Berlin in 1931, and he got to America in 1932. So he was very fortunate that during the Shoah, uh, when he was an adult, he was in his uh, 40s, in his 30s and 40s, uh, he was already in America. Uh, but obviously anyone who lived through that, even from afar, I mean, he lost lots of family members the, and the whole European Jewish milieu in which he had grown up. He grew up in, in, in uh, Lithuania and Belarus. He lived for a short time in Poland. He, all of that was gone. Uh, so the Shoah loomed very large in his thought. Uh, and, uh, and he wrote about it uh, he actually wrote about it during the Shoah. He wrote a very interesting essay, um, but he was still processing it at that point. Uh, a couple of years later, in 1956, he gave an address uh, on Yom Ha'atzma'ut. He used to speak every year on Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Uh, this one, he uh, was actually written up. Not all of them were written up, and it became very famous. It's his essay, Kol Dodi Dofek. Uh, which has actually been translated into English twice. So there he addresses the question, the question of suffering in general, and then in the end he applies it to contemporary events. Uh, but he starts, as the Rambam did, with the story of Job. Uh, but he has a very different reading than the Rambam, a very striking reading of the Rambam. In fact, it was very interesting. Once I uh, heard Rav Yoel Binun who's a contemporary Israeli, uh, you know, one of the leaders of the revolution in Tanakh study in, in our days, uh, I heard him give a shear on Eov. And I didn't know he was going to talk about Rav Soloveitchik's reading. He just said it was a shear on Eov. And so he said, um, the most compelling reading of Eov that he has ever encountered is, is the Rav's reading. So, I mean, the Rav doesn't need anyone's Yasher Koch, but uh, it was very nice that someone coming from a totally different direction, from the direction of Rav Kook, and, you know, he, Rav Yoel was a Talmud of Rav Tzvi Uda Kook, um, and uh, that he really felt that the Rav, you know, hit the nail on the head. And what was so striking about the Rav's reading? Um, so you have the story of Job. He's a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. Um, but he has sort of a very self-centered righteousness. It starts off and it says that, you know, whenever his children would have a party, he would offer sacrifices the next morning in case they had, you know, overstepped the bounds during their party and blasphemed God. So he was looking out for himself. So he was a good guy. He didn't do anything wrong. He feared God. But basically, he was looking out for his family. Uh, and then he loses everything. Uh, and then you know, he's, he's lamenting his fate. He's questioning God's justice. He has three friends who come to him and try to comfort him and try to justify God's ways to him. And he refuses to accept their justifications. In the end, God reveals himself to, to Job and says, you were right and they were wrong. All the answers they give that justified my ways were wrong. Uh, but God's answer is basically, you can't understand it. And Job, you can't understand my ways, and, but Job does learn something very important, and he, the whole switch in the book comes at the end. It says, uh, what, did, what did Job learn from his suffering? He learned empathy. He learned to feel fraternity with the broader community. He learned to look beyond the bounds of his family, because the Pasuk says, 
והשם שב את שבות איוב בהתפללו בעד רעהו. That when did God restore Job's fortunes? When he prayed for his friends. When he learned to pray, not just for himself and his family, but to, to pray for others, to identify with them, to empathize with them, to feel solidarity with them, that was when God restored his fortunes. So Rav Soloveitchik said that, uh, you know, the thing that we have to learn, we went through terrible suffering in the Shoah. We can't understand it. But if we learn anything from it, it's to learn the sense of solidarity, the sense of fraternity. We have to act. We have to act on behalf of suffering Jews. We have to act on behalf of suffering humanity. In the context that he was saying at the time, he was saying, you know, did we do enough during the Shoah to help our brothers who were stuck in Europe? We didn't. And he expresses terrible guilt on behalf of himself, on behalf of the rabbinic leadership, on behalf of the American Jewish community. Uh, and he says, we have to rectify that. If we learned anything, we have to do everything in our possibility to help Israel. The, you know, the fledgling state of Israel was only eight years old at the time. It was very embattled. Um, and so that was something where he felt on a public level, our suffering demands a response and we have to learn the lessons. The next lesson of suffering or the next two lessons of suffering really came from his own personal experience. Yeah. No, so tell us a bit about, about that. Um, so there's an interesting backstory to this. Um, the Rav, I, I had the privilege of working for more than a decade on his manuscripts. Now, he was very, very brilliant. I mean, that's unquestioned, but he was very disorganized. I mean, I guess that happens sometimes with very brilliant people. Uh, and he wrote a ton, but he didn't organize his writings. He didn't date it. He, if he would have, you know, like a 10-part series, he wouldn't label them part one, part two, part three. And so basically, when I started working on his manuscripts, I just had to, I just got boxes and boxes of material, and I had to assemble the pieces into coherent holes and to try to date them somehow and figure out when, where he wrote certain things. So one of the ways of... Uh, of, uh, so there were there were two basic ways of, of dating the manuscripts. One is if he referred to current events. So I knew, okay, here he talks about the Six-Day War, so this must have been written either in 1967 or afterwards, um, at least that. And the other way was to go and find notes from people who had heard his lectures and to see if the, lect if the notes matched the, uh, the manuscripts. So I uh, spoke to many, many rabbis in their 80s and 90s, and, uh, you know, in Jerusalem, and uh, we had someone in New York who would go do the legwork in New York, and people would take out their notes from their, you know, from their, uh, from the back of the closet, that every, by the way, all these, rab every single rabbi that we spoke to kept his notes. Even, you know, five, six decades later, they all said, oh, yes, of course I didn't throw those away, and I know exactly where they are. No one said, oh, yeah, those got lost a long time ago. So, um, so, so I found uh, notes uh, at one point, 500 pages of notes uh, of a three-year series that Rav Soloveitchik gave from 1957 to 1960. Now, this was, and then I asked around and I got the backstory to it. In 1957, Yeshiva University got a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health in America to study uh, the connection between religion and mental health. Uh, and there were several things that they did there. One of the things that they did was to convene a seminar, an interdenominational seminar of rabbis, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox rabbis. Uh, they would meet every, once every two weeks, and they had a seminar by Rav Soloveitchik on religion and mental health, issues in religion and mental health. Um, and now, this would have been very controversial at the time. It would probably be equally controversial today. And YU sort of kept it under the radar. They didn't hold the course at YU. They held it at a different building in, in lower Manhattan. Um, and there was a, a rabbi who, had, who was one of the Orthodox participants, uh, a Rabbi Sharfman, who took amazing notes, like stenographic uh, and he had given a photocopy to another rabbi who I found in Yerushalayim who gave me the 500 pages of photocopies. 
Now, once I found the notes from this series, I said, oh my gosh, so many manuscripts that I have fit into this. This manuscript is from December 1959. This manuscript is from here. And then suddenly all, all these manuscripts fit into, a, a, like more than a dozen manuscripts fit into a coherent whole. Now, what was interesting about the notes? Um, the notes go up to December 1959, and then there's a break until April 1960. And then, in April 1960, was uh, uh, a lecture that paralleled a certain manuscript I had. Now, in this manuscript, this manuscript was very, very rare. I was, I was reading the manuscript, and uh, very profound. And at, at one point, Rav Soloveitchik starts to talk about his own personal uh, encounter with cancer. That he had gotten... Uh, he, he says he actually was about to, uh, in 1959, his uncle, the famous Briskorov, Rav Velvel, uh, passed away in Yerushalayim, and he was supposed to give a hesped for him that day in Yeshiva University, which was attended by thousands of people, and, uh, and it was later published as Mado Dechmidot, it's one of his seminal articles, uh, and that morning, right before he gave the hesped, he got a call from the doctor, that his biopsy had come back and he had cancer and he needed to have surgery immediately. And that the chances of him surviving the surgery were not great. In other words, I don't know if it was 50-50 or whatever, but it was not good odds. So he got the diagnosis that morning. And then he got up that afternoon and delivered one of his most brilliant uh, hespadim. And he writes in this essay... It was very, it was, I mean, it was, it took my breath away. He said, I got up in front of the crowd of thousands and I felt totally isolated and alienated. I said, why me? Why am I different? Why will they all be here next year? And I won't be. He said, why won't I even have the privilege of walking my daughter to the chuppah? Because he says, she, my daughter was about to get married. And now I may not even be able to take her to the chuppah. So, so I called his daughter. He has two daughters. Uh, so I called one of them, Dr. Tova Lichtenstein. I, and he's, obviously the Rav survived. And he says that the wedding was delayed by a few weeks because of, he needed to recuperate from his surgery. I said, um, which, which wedding is this? Is this your wedding or your sister? She said, no, she said, my wedding, the Rav Lichtenstein and Dr. Tova Lichtenstein, their wedding was delayed because the Rav got this diagnosis and he needed immediate surgery and they wanted to wait for him to recover. The invitations already had already gone out and then they had to send another note to everyone that the wedding is being postponed. Um, and she said, why, why are you asking me about this? I said, because in this manuscript that I'm reading, He's talking about how he didn't know if he would be able to take you to the chuppah and your wedding was delayed. And she said, impossible. I said, what do you mean impossible? She said, he never spoke about that. He never, it was very traumatic for him. Uh, she said it was in 1959. So the Rav was uh, 56 years old. Uh, she said, and he never spoke about it in public. So how, you know, what can, what do you mean he wrote about it in the manuscript? So it turned out, I said, but, but look, I'm holding the manuscript. It's his handwriting. He's writing about it. So it turned out that she was right and I was right. Why? Because when I found the actual notes from the lecture that he gave, so in what context would the Rubs speak about his illness? So it turned out that it was in this seminar. He had been with a very small group of rabbis for three years. It was a very intimate setting. It wasn't a public lecture. He knew, he knew them for three years. He had just been gone for five months to recuperate. And his first lecture back, he had, for five months, he had been thinking about what can I learn from this encounter with mortality? And so he wanted to share with them what, you know, he wanted to share with them what he had concluded. So it makes a lot of sense that on his first lecture back after being sick for five months, he's going to talk about his, what he learned from being ill and from nearly dying. So, so I said, oh my gosh, this is that manuscript. So I start looking at the notes and the manuscript, and it's almost word for word the same. The guy took great notes. 
And then when it got to the part where he says, and now let me bring a personal example, that's completely missing from the notes. So one of two things happened. Either at that point, the Rav said, put down your pencils and I want to tell you something private. Or more likely, I think, but I'm totally speculating, he intended to tell them about it. He wanted to discuss it with them. But when he got to that point where he said, let me discuss my own experience, he just couldn't do it. And he skipped those pages and he went on to the next part of the essay. So, so that sat you know, in a drawer for 40 years till I read it. And then, I, and then it was published in his book, Out of the Whirlwind. So in Out of the World, I mean, I asked his daughter's permission. I said, can we, can we publish this, this personal thing? She said he wrote it and it's a very important uh, message. Um, so we did publish it. So if you look in Out of the Whirlwind in the title chapter, um, he, he mentions this. So he says that there were two major things that he learned. Uh, the first was, as I mentioned, the, the, the lesson of loneliness. He felt totally isolated. He said, he said, until that moment, he said, when I was about to go into the operation, he said, first, when I stood up, when I got the diagnosis and I was about to give the hesped, I felt totally alone. He said, and then when I was about to go into the operation, he said, I was surrounded by friends, about, not by friends, I was surrounded by my family, my wife, my children. They were giving me their love, their support. He said, but I felt totally alone because they're going to be here tomorrow and I'm the only one here in the room who's facing death. And he said, for the first time it dawned on me, I understand the meaning of the Pasuk, ki avivi mi azavuni v'ashem yasfeni for my, my father and my mother have abandoned me and God will, will, will take me up. He said, what, what do you mean, avivi mi azavuni? What kind of parent abandons his child? It's not so common. He said, no, but there are some situations in every person's life where his friends and family, the people who care most about him, as much as they love him and care about him, they can only walk him part of the way. And after that, it's just him and God. There's nothing they can do. So he said, I felt for the first time in my life just utterly alone with me and God. He said, that is a very traumatic experience, but a very powerful experience. And it's something I've tried to, to keep with me for the rest of my life, uh, to, to retain that sense of absolute dependence, of, ab, of absolute togetherness with God, that it's just me and him. Now, I'll tell you uh, uh, another story. Oh, uh, a yeshiva high school rebbe once told me he had a student in high school who unfortunately had cancer, and he would go to the hospital once a week and learn with him. He said, and at one point he came and he brought this book by Rav Soloveitchik, and he learned this passage with him, where the Rav talks about feeling alone, and where he feels, you know, he feels he like when he was standing in front of the crowd and he felt totally isolated and he read this passage with him and the boy started to cry. And he said, why are you crying? He said, I feel the same thing. He said, but I thought it wasn't okay to feel that. And now that I see that Rav Soloveitchik felt exactly the same thing, it gives me so much comfort. And I said, whoa. So, you know, if it were only, if only this, if only for this, it was worth publishing the book. If only for this, it was worth the Rav writing that. Uh, and, you know, the story had a bad ending, unfortunately, but at least the, the boy had a certain amount of comfort from this. So that's, that's one personal experience that he felt he learned from suffering, the sense of, of togetherness with God. And that's something that he tried to keep with him for the rest of his life. Uh, the other one, is, uh, is also something that, that he felt that we need to retain for the rest of life. He said, when, he said, you know, we all know, theoretically, we all know technically that we're mortal, right? Everyone will die, every single person. He said, but we know it theoretically, we don't experience it. He said, like, you know, when I played with my grandchildren, I felt, yeah, I'm always going to be around for them, you know? And he said, suddenly when he got the diagnosis he realized, oh, it's not just theoretical that I'm mortal. Actually, <laughs> I 
I may not be here much longer. And suddenly it became a reality for him. So on the one hand, he said, I lost all my comforting illusions of immortality. He said, and you know, I had had dreams of accomplishing this and that. And then I said, wait, if I only, he said, suddenly all my dreams contracted. He said, God, at least let me bring my daughter to the chuppah. That's all I'm asking from you. I'm not asking, you know, to be a great thinker, a great leader, to change the course of Jewish history. Just, just let me take my daughter to the chuppah. So he said, so uh, he lost his illusions. That was also very traumatic, but it made him rethink his priorities. And he said, sort of paradoxically, when you have a real worry, a real crisis, suddenly it relieves you of all your petty fears, all your daily worries. You know, in life, we have all these little anxieties, fears, and they're so small. He said, suddenly, I got a sense of proportion, and I felt totally relieved of all the pressures of daily life, and I could just focus on these things. So he said it was, it was a liberating thing at the same time that it was a traumatic thing, um, and it also gave him a new sense of proportion. And he said he realized that time is the thing that we don't take into account enough. He said when we realize that we have a limited time, you know, it could be a day, it could be a year, it could be 20 years, it could be 50 years, but it's limited. So he said, in the time that I have on earth, what do I want to accomplish? He said, the most important thing that came out of his confrontation with his own mortality was that it reawakened a sense of time awareness, of the preciousness of every moment, of the idea of what I can and should accomplish, and the need to assess my mission. He says very powerfully, uh, every person is placed on earth at a certain place, at a certain time, with certain skills to accomplish a mission that only he can accomplish. If he would live at a different time, it wouldn't be the same mission. If it would be a different place, it wouldn't be the same mission. He said, if God put me here now with a certain skill set, a certain so what am I supposed to do with this? He's, uh, he said, this is something that we all have to do. We all have to make this assessment because this is the greatness of the human being. Every human has a mission. Every human being is is valuable to God for a cause, and we can't lose sight of this. So the reawakening of his time awareness and mission focus was very important. That's Now, what's interesting is that Rav Kook says exactly the same thing in his parish on the Tefillah of the Yom Naraim. Rav Kook has a parish on uh, the Siddur called Olat Riyah, and we have the, the it says uh, in the Yamim Naraim, Elokai ad notzarti enikedai, v'achshav shenotzarti kilu lo notzarti, etc., etc. So it says, ad shelo notzarti enikedai, Rav Kook says, you are here and now to do something. So on Yom Naraim, we're supposed to think about that. Uh, and actually, <laughs> the uh, this is one of the few places that Rav Soloveitchik quotes Rav Kook. They met once in 1935, about two months before Rav Kook passed away. Rav Kook was a generation older than him. Um, and, uh, you know, they're the two titans of modern Jewish thought. Uh, and, you know, the shapers of the modern Orthodox slash religious Zionist communities. Um, and uh, they, they really, while they differ on many issues and they have different approaches and different frameworks, they come together on this. That, you know, the dignity of each human being, the value of each human life, the need to make the most of every minute. The, so, so Rav Soloveitchik actually quotes that Rav Kook comes to the same conclusion as him. Um, and that's why Rav Soloveitchik says, as traumatic as these experiences were, the, these experiences were for him, he learned such valuable lessons, they're important to take, to take with us to the future. Um, and I think we see from Rav Kook, and interestingly, Rav Lichtenstein also said the same thing from a different angle. It shouldn't just be that at times of crisis we come to these conclusions. These are such valuable lessons, we have to be able to learn them in another way. So Rav Lichtenstein says something uh, very striking. He says, you know, we have a mitzvah of tshuva, right? Um, 
Now, there's, the Rambam says there's a special mitzvah of tshuva during the Aseret Yemei Tshuva. So what's the difference? You know, if all year round you have to do tshuva, so why is there a special mitzvah during Aseret Yemei Tshuva? So Rav Lichtenstein suggested that it's two different types of tshuva. All year round, you should say, you know, what am I doing wrong? And I should stop doing that. I should be more careful about, you know, davening with kavana. I should, you know, speak less Lashon Hara. I should uh, try to remember to say brachos. I should set aside more time for, for learning. I should be nicer to my family, whatever it is. So that's true year round. He said, there's a special mitzvah during Aseret Yemei Tshuva of assessing your course in life. Not what particular things, but where am I headed? What are my goals? What's my mission? So it's exactly this point that Rav Soloveitchik is, is, is making. Rav Soloveitchik says when he encountered, you know, his own potential imminent demise, it made him think about these questions. Rav Lichtenstein said that's such an important lesson, we have to think about it every year during Aseret Yemei Tshuva, when we're all standing before God for judgment, you know, to see whether we will be granted another year of life. So that's the time that we should make our assessment. I've been sitting here listening to what you've been saying, and I, I don't want to speak for Aryeh, but I'm personally blown away. We think of, of the Rav as this intellectual giant who, you know, certainly today is, is totally unapproachable, but you're telling these stories of how, you know, facing his own mortality and the, you know, the emotion with which he was, he was, um, approaching the the crisis in, in his own life and and how that would affect himself and his family and those around him it's certainly you know something that i've never um appreciated uh in, from from the what i've learned uh, of the rav and then you mentioned of course uh Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, his son-in-law um and i remember you saying when uh, we were publishing um return and renewal uh, which is Rav Lesenstein talking about Teshuvah and, and uh, you know, for the, uh, the high holidays in the Yom Narayim. Um, and how reading that, you see his approach to the different things he was wrestling with uh, at the time that he was writing each essay that was collected into that book. Um, we see Rav Aaron and Rav Aaron certainly was sort of the intellectual heir of, uh, certainly one of the intellectual heirs of, of the Rav. Um, is there sort of a a nuance between the two approaches, between the Rav and Rav Aaron, or was Rav, did Rav Aaron really take what Rav Soloveitchik said and how he approached uh, tackling uh, times of difficulty and you know just apply it uh, in, in exactly the same way? Um, well, I'll start with a, a story about uh, the, the hero of both Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Soloveitchik, and that's Rav Chaim Brisker, uh, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, Rav Soloveitchik's grandfather. He was really their, you know, their their role model, their hero. So when Rav Chaim Brisker was uh, was hired to be the Rav of Brisk, so in those days, you know, the rabbi didn't give a drasha every Shabbos. Uh, the rabbi gave a drasha twice a year on Shabbos Shuva and on Shabbos Hagadol. So they said, okay, you know, part, you know, when they were signing, when he was signing the rabbinical contract, so. Uh, so they told him, you're going to have to give two drasha a year. So he said, listen, Shabbos Hagadol, I can do. He said, Shabbos Shuva, who am I to give Musr to people to tell them about Shuva? That's not me. I can't do that. He said, I'll tell you what I... They said, no, but you have to. Everyone's expecting. He said, okay, I'll tell you what I can do. I will get up and I'm going to give myself Musr. And you can all listen to Chaim talking to Chaim. Um, that's the most I can do. So I think that in the Rav's Tshuva Drashat, which we've also been very fortunate to publish on repentance, and in Rav Lichtenstein's Tshuva Drashat, uh, Return and Renewal, uh, I think that we're listening, you know, we're listening to them talking to themselves primarily. In other words, they're not speaking in abstract terms. They're not writing, you know, about what you guys have to do better, always. They're writing from their personal experience. Now, Rav Soloveitchik writes that more explicitly, uh, Rav Lichtenstein, it doesn't uh, nearly as frequently, Rav Lichtenstein was not a storyteller, uh, and Rav Lichtenstein didn't give the personal examples as often, but you read the essays and the the sincerity, the, the, the issues that he identifies, it, the, it just, his authenticity <laughs> oozes from between the lines. 
I mean, to, for anyone who knew him, it's clear that these were the issues that concerned him personally, and that that's why he's writing about them so, why he's grappling with them, you know, in, in the essays. So I think that, uh, you know, each one, they were very different personalities, and so they have very, not just different writing styles. Uh, I mean, the same general approach, yes, but each one put his own individual imprint on it. Um, and so uh, the, you know, they, they, they are focusing slightly on different issues, um, but both very much writing out of their own hearts and their writing, and that's what makes it so powerful. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like you can listen to Chaim talking to Chaim. So even when they're not ex explicitly saying that, it's clear that, that they're, they're not uh, doing alchet on someone else's chest, they're doing alchet on their own chest. Uh, and they're writing about, and you think, you know, these were two titans, two giants, you know, uh, what, what did they have to do tshuva for? So no, but, but they did, they felt that they did, and that's inspiring to us to see, you know, that, that they, they always felt that you can do better. You can, you'll never reach what you fully should be. And you should never be satisfied with yourself. The two of them were as far as could possibly be from self-satisfaction, uh, you know, which is a besetting problem in religious life in general. And I mean, in terms of Rav Aaron's writings, I guess if we go into the, to sort of delve into them a bit further, um, do we see in other places or other sikhot that he gave uh, where he would bring in these ideas on suffering or teshuva um, in, into other, you know, into other times of year, chagim, parasha, something like that. Is it a theme that continues? Um, yeah, both of them were not just great, you know, abstract thinkers, but they also were educators. I mean, both of them in their bones were educators. It's not just that they happened to teach because, you know, you can't earn a living from writing philosophy books. Um, no, both of them had so much Torah and, and so much to give and they felt the need to give it. Uh, and uh, in fact, both of them, uh, I think, made a self-conscious choice to devote themselves more to teaching than to writing. It wasn't, it wasn't an economic thing. In fact, there was, there was someone who, who actually offered uh, one, uh, you know, uh, to the Rav. He said, stop teaching so much. I'm going to pay you to just sit and write. And he said, no. He, you know, both of them made a choice that they needed to influence the Jewish world through direct teaching, through creating, uh, you know, the future generation of rabbis and educators, and also the future generation of educated lay people. Uh, and both of them felt that it was important to teach not just men, but women, um, even though they devoted themselves mainly to the education of men, but they also uh, made efforts to, to increase the Jewish education quotient of women. Um, so, so whatever they dealt with in their abstract writings, they tried to bring down to the level of, of teaching, uh, even without, you know, doing one-on-one Moser Shmuzes. I mean, both were open and available to their students. One, one actually striking thing that they had in common, uh, and, you know, we can't get into the differences now, but they were very, very different people, even though everyone thinks, you know, Rav, Sol Rav Lichtenstein was the leading disciple of Rav Soloveitchik. Okay, that's true. Uh, he got it all. He got the lumdus, he got the philosophy, and uh, he got uh, everything. Uh, he had the whole package. Um, but uh, just in terms of their personal makeup, you know, Rav, Rav Soloveitchik was a very stormy divided personality and it comes through in his writings you know the dialectic the back and forth the you know the soaring emotions the the deep divisions and uh Rav Lichtenstein was a much more harmonious personality he was much more integrated uh you don't find the same you know, in Rav Lichtenstein, you'll, you'll see there's also dialectic, but it's not a dialectic that, that, you know, you're constantly torn and you're going back and forth. With Rav Lichtenstein, it's you have a dialectic and you're trying to integrate two things in your life, even if they're in tension. Um, so there, and that comes through in their writings in Chuva also. Um, so very different personalities. Um, but, uh, but both with, you know, the same, the same, goals, the same approach, the same 
passion for, for education and for, for molding the future and a sense of deep responsibility to Torah and to, to the Jewish future. And both of them had, interestingly, the same educational approach. And that was a non-authoritarian approach. Both of them, you know, Rav Soloveitchik said uh, in Pirkei Avot, we say, you know, the Anshe Knesset Agdola said three things, and one of them was Ha'amidu Talmidim Harbeh. So what does it mean, Ha'amidu Talmidim Harbeh? Raise up many students. You know, you could say, teach many students, have many students. Why raise up many students? So Rav Soloveitchik said, because the goal of education is to, is to make them stand on their own feet, to make them not dependent on you, to make them able to think for themselves, to make them independent people. Um, and so that was very much the approach of both of them. They said, you know, I'm, I'm here to teach. I'm here to be a resource, um, you know, and both of them kind of frustrated their students because students, you know, especially both of them taught students at very critical junctures in their lives, you know, people college age and above. So they're deciding the big questions of life, you know, what should my profession be? Who should I marry? You know, the things that will shape the, the next, you know, 70 years of your life. And so they have very big decisions to make. And so they would come and consult with both Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Lichtenstein, and both of them would do the same thing. They'd say, okay, I'm going to help you think through the considerations of, you know, the different sides of your decision. And you have to decide yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Most people, you know, freedom is difficult. Autonomy is difficult, right? There's a, a book by Erich Fromm called Escape from Freedom. He says the rise of fascism is because people could, can't handle freedom. They want someone to tell them what to do. When you have, and today, you know, people are really get stuck in life because there's too many choices and they don't want to eliminate possibilities. So, so sometimes you can just not do anything and be paralyzed or stay in sort of some limbo state for years and decades. Uh, and then other times people can say, okay, I choose to give up my autonomy. You decide for me. Unfortunately, they don't ask their parents to do that, but that's a different question. Um, uh, speaking as a parent of uh, older kids. Um, no, I, I want them to decide for themselves. I don't want to decide for them. Um, and, you know, I did learn from this educational approach from Rev. Lichtenstein and Rev. So they, their goal was to say, okay, you know, here, here are your considerations. Here are the advantages of this side. Here are the advantages of that side. Let's think it through together, but I'm not going to decide for you. And you have to take responsibility for your own decisions. At first, it's illegitimate for me to decide because I'm me, you're you. If, if I decide for you, I'm telling you, do what I would do. But you're a different person. And second, you, you're, you know, you're a big boy or a big girl. You have to decide for yourself and you have to own your decision. You have to take the responsibility. And, uh, and that's a very, it's scary, but it's empowering. So, so I think that, uh, that was, that was another goal that they both had in common. Now, I was going to say, as you mentioned before, we, I think this is something we could talk about for, for hours and hours. Um, I just wanted to try and, I guess, bring some of the threads together, um, and, and, and sort of bring it back to the sort of what we're seeing at the moment. Um, you mentioned earlier how sort of one of one of the Rav's, um, I guess, takeaways or one of the messages that he, he took from this idea of suffering was looking at the value of each individual person and um, of people, you know, of, I guess, respecting people and, 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 and the value of life. Um, and I guess taking one thread, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the, obviously, the, the troubling developments um, that have been going on in America over the past week or so, um, and I read a story actually that was uh, th that uh, Rabbi Billet um, from Young Israel of Woodmere shared about about Rav Aaron, um, where he said that in 1968, when Rav Aaron was um, in YU, um, he took he demanded that his his Talmudim in the Shia should go with him to a protest um, at the UN um, to support the Black Igbo tribe of Biafra. Um, who were being at the time persecuted and annihilated in the Nigerian civil war. And um, that was all part of Rav Aron's um, emphasis on teaching his students you have to care for all human life. 
um, and, and to rally against uh, you know any kind of injustices like that. And Rabbi Billet wrote, he wrote that we arose early, we davened Vatikin, we had shear for two hours, and then we made our way to the UN on a frigid below zero morning. Of the 60 people who attended the rally, 47 were white YU boys with their Rebbe. Um, I thought that was like an amazing story of a side of Rav Aaron that I, you know, not, as someone who's not a student, a direct student of Rav Aaron, something I, a side of him I'd never heard before, but I was wondering from your perspective as a student of his, was that sort of a message that you, that you, heard, you, 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 heard, you heard from Rav Aaron or you found in his writings? Uh, yeah, I think Ravarn is one of the only Russia yeshiva who would speak about. I mean, I remember he gave uh, there was a tsunami in uh, in I don't know when it was about fifteen years ago, and it was you know hundreds of thousands of people were killed in uh, in Sri Lanka and in India and various places, and so which Rosh yeshiva got up to give a sicha about the tsunami in Asia? Or which Rosh Yeshiva, I mean, you know, Rosh Yeshiva got up to give Sichot about 9-11 because, okay, that was in New York. Everyone knows New York and people felt connected to it. But uh, yeah, Rav Lichtenstein would speak about these things um, uh, in Yeshiva and he felt we had to care about what's going on in the world. Uh, not to say that's not relevant to us, you know, it's far away, it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, I, uh, Rabbi Michael Rosenzweig was uh, told a very interesting story. He said his first day in yeshiva in 1972, uh, he walks into the Beit Midrash, uh, you know, leaves his bags in his room and gets to the yeshiva in time for mincha. And after mincha, Rabarn gets up to give a sicha. And so he said, okay, so Rabarn is talking about that day Israel had mistakenly shot down a Libyan passenger airliner with, I don't remember how many passengers, uh, you know, but, you know, a uh, hundred, whatever, something like that. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. Um, and uh, so Israel had, Israel had thought that it was a, a, you know, a fighter jet coming into its borders. They shot too quickly. They didn't get the, it was, it was mistakes were made. Uh, they, maybe they couldn't communicate with the Libyan pilot. And uh, the Libyan pilot was off course. He was going over Israel. So Israel shot it down. Everyone was killed. And so most people would say, okay, it was a mistake. They shouldn't have been there, you know. And Rav Lichtenstein got up and said, we have to feel the tragedy. This is, this is uh, a horrible thing. We didn't do it intentionally, but we have to be careful about every human life. Every human life is important. And then when Rav Lichtenstein finished speaking, one of the older students asked if he could re respond. And oh, he wasn't an older student. He was one of the young teachers, Madrichim. It was the aforementioned Raviol Binun. And he got up and said, no, we have to guard our borders and, and uh, we can't uh, cry every time things like this happen because we have to be vigilant. And so he disagreed. Then <laughs> I remember at Rav Lichtenstein Shiva five years ago, Raviol Binun said, he told this story. And he said, he was right, I was wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, and so Rabbi Rosenzweig, who was, you know, a young student uh, just out of high school, said, whoa, after Mincha every day, do they have a discussion of current events? Like Rav Lichtenstein gets up, gives one position, someone else gets up and gives a different position. He thought that's, that's very interesting. But it was very typical of Rav Lichtenstein. So, so you know, uh, I think that the teachings of Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Soloveitchik are very relevant for today. I mean, one question that I get asked every once in a while and I refuse to answer is, you know, what would Rav Soloveitchik say about X today? So, I mean, I'm not his, you know, I'm not a ventriloquist and I don't know what he would say and I don't want to speak in his name. I can say what I learned from what he said and, you know, how that impacts how I view things, but I, I'm never going to tell you if Rav Lichtenstein were here today, this is what he would say about or about Corona or about you know the George Floyd uh, riots, and I don't know. Um, but look, the from from what we saw about Rav about Rav Soloveitchik's teachings on suffering, so I think that we can all apply them to what's going on today. I mean, first of all, as as I said before, you know, a crisis means being shaken out of your routine, being shaken out of your complacency. Everything is different. So I think that basically the entire planet Earth has experienced that. Uh, I don't remember the last time the entire planet Earth experienced something like that. Um, and, and all these messages 
are, are relevant to us today. The message that Rav Soloveitchik gave in Kol Dufek, that we have to learn empathy, that we have to learn a sense of solidarity, that we have to learn a sense of chesed, uh, and also the lessons that he said he learned from his own personal encounter with mortality, that we, it has to give us a new sense of proportion of what's important, the sense of, of, our, of our dependence on God, of a sense of loneliness, of closeness to God. I mean, a lot of people are experiencing loneliness today uh, and isolation. So loneliness and isolation can be very negative, of course, but it can also Maybe in your loneliness, you can find a way to connect to the great lonely one, the ultimate lonely one, who's God. Um, and also, when we've been shaken out of our complacency and our routines have been changed, it should make us reassess our, our path to connect to our sense of personal mission, saying, maybe, you know, maybe my life until now, I was so stuck in a routine, maybe there are changes I need to make going on in the future. Maybe I need to focus more on certain things. Maybe I need to have a different uh, work-life balance. Maybe I, you know, etc. So, uh, and and Rav Soloveitchik made a very, very striking point. Uh, he said, you know, when when you experience a crisis, you can either just go with the flow or you can actively choose to respond to it, to, to learn its lessons, to utilize it as a, as a catalyst for constructive action, for personal growth, for improvement of the self, improvement of, of society, uh, improvement of your community, of the world. Uh, and the Rav said, when you don't utilize a crisis, so there's a dual tragedy. First, there's the tragedy that you have the crisis. And then there's the tragedy that you wasted the crisis. It's not just enough that you had the crisis, but you didn't even use it to, to build anything, to do anything, to change anything. So he said, therefore, whenever we experience these things, I mean, we have to try to ameliorate suffering as much as we can. We have to try to help others. We have to try to improve the situation. And we should try to, to use it as a catalyst for improvement, either on the, the personal or the social le level. So I think that, you know, we can, uh, we can wish uh, everyone who's listening, you know, that uh, everyone should stay healthy. <laughs> we should all help each other. And we should all somehow use this very strange and difficult time and all the different crises that are going on in the world to, to improve things on the personal level and on the societal level. I mean, I mean, I think we can uh, all agree to that. Indeed. Um, so Rabbi Ziegler, thank you so much. Um, as always, for giving us, I guess, a, a new and a, a new way and or a, a deeper way of um, understanding the thought of these two giants of uh, modern orthodoxy. Uh, the final question that we ask to all our guests um, is, um, which I guess for the, for the two, for the Rav and for Rav Aaron, what, what what would you say is the best one book for each of them to get a sense of their philosophy, uh, a sense of their hashkafa? Um I, I'll, I'll, I'll answer what I think is the best gateway to, to get into their thought. Because, you know, both of them are not, when they wrote themselves, they were not easy writers. Uh, they demanded a lot of their readers, and they reward effort immeasurably. The scope, the depth, the organization, the clarity, the innovativeness, it's just amazing. Like, you know, when you read either of them, you're going to get something that they thought about deeply. They, they weren't just, you know, writing to publish to build up their publications list. No, they were both, they wrote when they had something important to say. And they, and they, they would not address a subject unless they could do it in all its depth. Uh, so depth is demanding, but depth is what it's all about. Um, but I would say that with both of them, it's best to start with not things that they wrote themselves, but adaptations that other people wrote that are a little, uh, that, that retain, you know, the depth, but, but simplify the syntax, maybe make it a little clearer, a little, you know, easier to digest. So I think for Rav Soloveitchik, uh, the best place to start would be with the book that we mentioned before on repentance. It's very clear, very readable. You don't have to have a graduate degree in philosophy to read it. Uh, not, not that his other essays, you do have to have a graduate degree in philosophy, but you, you have to work hard. Uh, when you're reading the things that he wrote himself. Uh, and with Rav Lichtenstein, also I would recommend By His Light, which takes his thought, presents it in a, in a very cl clear fashion. It's, also, it's not stuff that he wrote, it's, it's uh, lectures he gave that, that are adapted 
for an audience. And that also can be read by a high school kid, um, maybe not ninth grade or 10th grade, but, you know, 11th and 12th, I think, can read it. Any college student can pick up either of these books, uh, any, you know, and, and I've, I know I've heard from a lot of people uh, that uh, even those who are not big readers, uh, they found both of these books, you know, hard to put down. Um, and uh, then, you know, after you do Rav Lichtenstein 101 and Rav Soloveitchik 101, uh, then you can move on to advanced topics. And I would highly, highly recommend moving on to the advanced topics and reading their own writings, which, you know, you can find uh, in a Google search very easily. Thank you, Ziegler, for giving us your time. I, I found it fascinating. I've uh, enjoyed it immensely. Um, so thank you so, so much for giving us your time. And hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast soon and we can hear even more uh, of your, your wonderful wisdom. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Arya. It's always good to uh, see you. I mean, I can see you in Zoom, even though everyone uh, who's listening can't. But uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to many more podcasts that you two are going to put together. Thank you very much. Thank you. In each episode of the Koran podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. So we're on all of social media, Koran Publishers on Facebook, at Koran Publishers on Instagram and on Twitter. And of course, you can email us at podcast at corinpub.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the philosophy of the Rav or Rav Aaron Lefstenstein, you can get 10% off the two books that Rabbi Ziegler recommended on Repentance and by His Light from www.corinpub.com and enter promo code podcast at checkout. In each episode of the Corin podcast, and I'm Alex Drucker. In each episode of the Koran Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page.